I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to the Celtics Pod. I hope you're having a glorious start to your Friday morning. And by glorious, I mean absolutely grand spanking, perfectly, amazingly, every other superlative. Superlative? <laughs> I don't know. So superlative. I think you 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 were on a roll there, just stringing yeah, those together. Dude, so I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> I'm living. I'm living on the. I'm living on the precipice of a vibe right now. I feel super good. Precipice of a vibe. I love that. That's the name of the episode right there. Precipice <laughs> of a vibe. I'm telling you, dude. Woke up this morning. Before we get into it, I'm your boy Adam Taylor. You know me by now. I'm joined by my co-host, my compadre, and I'm going to say it again, my co-hosting crime is how i like to refer to you these <laughs> days mr will we are coming to you live straight from austin texas where i'm very jealous of what's going on will man how you what doing? is good adam the precipice of a vibe we're recording morning after the game for me usually we record before some of these games on on thursday nights but this was too big we couldn't do it before that we wanted to make sure that we got y'all something that was representative of what potentially could go down and what did go down last night against the memphis grizzlies and the the mood is flowing here you know morning time for me i got my coffee living off the vibes of last night adams as you all know rewatches the game the day after from you know living in the uk and this man came on to the screen and had an energy I have not seen all season. This man is ready to go. Yeah, I'm telling you, dude, we should do these uh, mid-afternoon recordings more often because right now, the, the way you feel right now, that grogginess and like need, like that's how I feel <laughs> on almost every episode. So this level of energy is rarely seen from me because when we record, I'm like, dude, I'm tired. Right now, I am wired. I'm ready to talk ball. I'm happy. I'm rubbing my hands together with excitement. If you Yo. can hear that, let's get some ASMR I, going. I, I'm happy to make that happen. That feels a little bit like a home and home, right? Like 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 home home territory for me is we're recording, you know, afternoon my time. It's like 11 p.m. <laughs> your time, 10 p.m. But we'll switch it up every once in a while. We'll get, you know, a little 8 a.m., a little 7, 8 a.m. recording my time. Get it in the afternoon in your time. I'm all down with it, man. Let's make it happen. Yeah, I'm down with it, man. I mean, look, man. When it's a win like this, when I need this energy, man. So let's get let's get into this. Let's talk some ball. Usually, we'll give everybody like a 15 minute rant of why Lord of the Rings the first one. Was good. <laughs> but look, man, I I want to avoid that today just because there's so many good things to hit on yeah. and so much fun. Uh, coach of the year for um, coach of the year. I wish it could potentially be. Coach hey, of I mean, year, I mean, he's, he's creeping into that combo. It's not as much as we've given criticisms to Emay throughout the season. He's creeping into that conversation, so it's not ludicrous to say that. So, coach of the month, though, yeah, coach of the year is possible. That's coach of the month for Mister Udoka. I feel like for me, if you can hear a phone ringing, I forgot to put it on mute, but we'll continue. Um, I feel like for me. I feel guilty for some of those comments that I made about Udoka to begin the year. I feel like I lack patience. And we can talk about that at another point, right? But okay. I feel like this game kind of fortified why he was deserving of coach of the month. His adjustments were great. I think it showed courage to start Aaron Neesmith. The uh, the understanding there was from what I had was like, hey, we, our bench unit's rolling right now. We want to keep continuity there. So the best thing we can do is keep that bench unit as it is. Neesmith isn't really a big part of that bench unit, so let's plug and play him. And obviously, it didn't work out that way. I hope he's okay. I know we'll hear more today. But that entire logic made perfect sense to me, but it took guts, right? That was a gutsy move because if that had backfired, 
that falls directly on Udoka's shoulders. So it showed a bunch of trust in Neesmith. I think that goes to show that Udoka said all season, like the, the guys that aren't in the rotation, it's not anything they've done. They're just kind of, they're up against it in terms of winning minutes off some of these more experienced players for the nicest way to say it. But this showed a bunch of trust in Neesmith. I hope it gave him a confidence boost, showed him there is a path to some minutes for him. And I think that Udoka really deserves like a round of applause or some flowers or something. But for having, he, he deserves a bouquet, some candy. You know, he deserves a couple different, you know, gifts at this point. And, yeah, dude. you know, like you said, we'll, we'll have a different discussion one day about like how, because I think there's an evolution to Ime throughout the year that's been really yeah. impressive. But the word that you just used, gutsy, I really like that because I think that is something that has changed throughout throughout the year for him. And, you know, you think of like last night starting Aaron Neesmith. A little bit of a surprise, gutsy move. But I like to your point. I love the rationale of, you know, we know who our guys are, and we if we when we don't have to disrupt one of our units, let's not do it. You know, and like one of the other things that I want to point out that he not necessarily for last night, but just in general, where it comes to Eme being gutsy, Peyton Pritchard's been in the mix with the closing unit for like three of the four last games. Yes, Think sir. about how many times we sat here. Can Peyton Pritchard get seven minutes? We're, we were begging for seven <laughs> minutes of Peyton Pritchard. And now the Celtics are in fifth place in the Eastern Conference, a handful of games back from first place. And if the moment strikes, Ime is not afraid to make a move. And that's something that has been a huge evolution of his coaching style. And he deserves all the credit in the world for that. Ime's rolling right now. Do you hear him kind of cracking jokes with the with the media after the game? Oh, and like, bro. what adjustments did you make? I forget what the question was. But he was just like, well, you know, it's it's really nice when we have the coach of the month in there. And yeah. so I was like, Ime, yeah, do your thing, man. You deserve it. You deserve it because you, you've gotten plenty of stuff in a rookie season as a coach. So you want to puff your chest a little bit with them jokes? Crack away, my friend. Yeah, flex on us, man. Like, yeah. flex Because we've been flexing on you at the start of the season. I want to see that. And I like it when I'm a big fan of people being especially in like areas as a coach or as a player where you're a public facing figure to some extent i like it when you peel back that curtain we see a bit of a hint of your personality sometimes yeah like we i mean brad stevens was the worst for that because he was so deadpan <laughs> it was like i think this just is who you are right like dad jokes yeah. and, and you know like, like if you got a beer with him at a bar like that's you, you kind of feel like he kind of would give you the same energy like it, it wasn't that he wasn't like like he was putting on a facade it's like that's just Brad. That's what it feels like anyway. Yeah, dude just lives his life on a five out of ten all the time. <laughs> just never, you know what I mean? Udoka, I feel like, rides that wave a little bit more. It's a bit like, you know, the fan base itself. We ride the good and the bad. Mm. So I like seeing that. I like seeing him peel that back a little bit. And as you say, Pritchard's getting some run now. I feel like um, he's on a really good shooting tear at the moment. This is, I think he's around 40% from deep, maybe just a bit over. Last time I checked, he was at 43.5%. Should have hit mute on that a moment ago. Um <laughs> not even my phone so i can just ignore it's it that hotline bling oh i wish yeah let me just uh hit do not disturb yep so for me it's very much along the lines of that's a gutsy move itself especially because of the defensive drawbacks but what we've seen is pritchett's not scared to go and guard a big man and then they'll scram him out of there if it starts to look like it's a dangerous position udoka's system's really starting to win me over you know and i feel like he's adding wrinkles as we go we've seen in the hawks game we saw Al Horford played drop and one through four would switch around him. In this game, there were moments where he was just like, yo, Al, go guard Jar. You know what I mean? You're switched on to Jar. We're not going to call us. Like, we're going to let this ride out. And obviously that's not Udoka calling that out because he's not yeah. a puppet master. But 
it's happening like Al Horford's on Ja Morant and you don't feel worried about it. I mean, you, you, whoever's guarding Ja, you should feel a little bit worried. But the way the system's designed and the rotations and the help defense and just the intricacy with what they play now in the communication, I never felt concerned with Al on Ja at all. And it only happened a few times. I think it was 10 possessions total that I counted where Al kind of had to pick up Ja. Mm-hmm. But that 10 possessions is something that I don't think would have gone well four or five months ago. Yeah. And that's not a knock on Al. That's a knock on how the team were performing at that moment in time. And it's John Morant. So, you know, like <laughs> yeah, there's not helps. many guys that can stay in front of him. And I think I think as a team, and and you know, Ime even said this in the post game that he felt like it was a quiet 38, I think, that that John Morant had. And I think it's because they were able to contain those consistent runs that Ja was able to go on. And, and really get others going, too, you know? Like, the one thing they did with Jazz, they did a good job of containing him in, in small spaces. One of the things when I watch Job Morant that makes him so special is he takes nothing and creates something out of it because mm-hmm. he's so athletic, so explosive. And aside from, you know, when he got out in transition, last night, like the dunk he had in that first half, my Lord, that was, uh, that was something else. That was a Jaw special. But, you know, he didn't get to be able to do that in the half court. And that's if you watch some of the other games that, that the Grizzly have played, he can still he, he can turn it on without having to get that head of steam, you know. And that's what's so crazy about John Moran is that when he snakes a pick and roll, he almost snakes it like whatever the fastest snake in the world is that I can then jump 20 feet in the air. Like like that's <laughs> like that's kind of what John Moran does. And the Celtics did a really good job last night of even when it's Al Horford. To your point of the way the defensive system works, it's so connected that there was always another body ready to be there. Even if, like, you know, like I think Grant Williams several times, I feel like he stepped in and whether or not Job made the shot, he was taking a shot where Grant Williams is straight up verticality right there in his face. Of course, he's not going to jump with Job Morant, but the point is maybe he got by Al or he got by one of the other bigs and there's another guy there. There was never not another guy there. And Ja had to take some really difficult shots all night long. And so, you know, despite him putting up 38 points, you know, and then they baited him into taking 12 threes. So that's a win right there. Job Morant taking 12 threes is a win. He shoots about four, four and a half a game. So I think the Celtics defense last night, which, you know, comes from the mind of Ime Odoka, I think they deserve a huge credit. I thought, you know, even with 38 points, I think they did a great job on John Moran last night. Okay, I've got a couple of things I want to hit on here. Some of them are just for comedy value, just for yeah. the entertainment, because my brain's working at a decent capacity right now. So the first one is, do you reckon when Grant Williams defends you and you miss a shot, he just whispers in your ear, do you want to play Katana later? <laughs> do you know what I mean? He's just like, first of all, I want to take him up on that offer. But yes, and I, and I will say this, I've been talking about this with our other co-host, Greg, a lot. I, like my, one of my favorite subplots for the rest of the season is Grant's confidence. Grant is constantly throwing up the German three or he's like, you know, <laughs> yes. talking trash. Like Grant's, Grant's confidence over the last couple of weeks where he's just like, now that because it was really was solidified a little bit before the trade deadline. Like, listen, man, you're part of the seven or eight or whatever deep we're going. Like you're a crucial part of this. And I think that even though he had been getting consistent minutes, it feels like something flipped and like Grant feels like a new guy when he's out there, the way that he, that he attacks closeouts. Now he's not afraid to the way that he's like, taking different types of threes. You know, it's not just all catch and shoot. Now it might be a pump fake, a step to the side. He may, you know, there was, I think of the game against the Pistons, he kind of drove up, gave like a hard jab step, got the defender off, took the three. Like Grant is just a different guy mentally right now. And I am here for it because it's the nerdiest swag. And that's the type of swag that I want to see because it's it's just unbelievable comedic value night to night. We need some t-shirts, hashtag nerds, nerd swag. 
Nerdswag. That is Grant to a T. <laughs> so the other one I wanted to do, and I'm terrible for this, like I'll sit here and talk about X's and O's and talk about basketball for hours, literally hours, and I'll ne- I won't get bored. But one thing I'm terrible for is playing basketball Frankenstein. And what I mean by that is I look around at a player and I'm like, what players would you need to take parts off to form this player that we're seeing in front of us, right? And I played that with Ja Morant this morning. So I watched the game and I sat there like, if I was to say that Ja was a molecular binding of two players, who would it be? And I ended it with Alan Iverson and Robert Williams. And I feel very confident in that now, thinking about it. He's got the athleticism of Rob because John Morant is Robert Williams with handles and far smaller. That's basically what it is. He's got more spatial awareness of what's going on. He's he's not as big, but he's just as explosive in the handles and the creativity and the swagger and the pizzazz. That's all Alan Iverson. So I was very much in that. John Morant is the molecular combination of Alan Iverson. Yeah. And Rob. The, the, the Rob Williams threw me up. I love the Alan Iverson combo because I think the swag like matches perfectly and the fact that he's just never scared, right? Like, yeah. like John Morant is, you know, when he was going four of 12, and I think at one point he was, you know, maybe like one of seven from three. But it didn't seem like it. he was never taking bad shots. He was open every time. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Giannis last year in the playoffs where it was like, hey, listen, like I'm going to keep driving. I'm going to keep taking free throws because I know ultimately this is going to be better for my team. And eventually I'm going to start making them. And, you know, Josh started knocking down some threes and I got a little worried that Josh was going to go on a tear, you know. So, like, he has that type of, of confidence. So. The Rob Williams one's throwing me off. I love the Allen Iverson one. I mean, typically, you know, I, I feel like Jaws always getting compared to Derrick Rose, Russell Westbrook, because he just has that <laughs> explosion, man. And it's, yeah. it's, 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 I was, t- once again, I was, I literally, me and Greg did a, did a 617 podcast right after the game last night. So some of those thoughts are just fresh in my mind. I was saying, like, watching Ja. It's, it's kind of like, you know, for the dunk contest, they always talk about smaller guys tend to get better scores because it just looks cooler because they're smaller and like when they jump out the building. That's what a little bit of job, but he just does it every night and does it in such unique ways that we don't ever see. Like job Morant being the size that he is with the swagger that he has, the Allen Iverson level swagger, and then jumping out the building. It's it's such a unique combination, and I'm, I love watching him, man. He's, he's a league pass favorite. Yeah, the reason I use Robert Williams is just because it's. I just felt like it was very cliche to be like, oh, he's Alan Iverson. Yeah, I got you. you Thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Like, who's super bouncy that can jump out the gym? Rob Williams. I've just watched Rob Williams do it. That's who I'm going to (laughs) go with. The other thing is we were talking about, like, Jar containing Jar, and I think that one of the biggest points of emphasis there was it wasn't just that you didn't let him get to the rim. You took away the half-court offense almost exclusively for that first half of basketball. Like, I remember Scal saying this as well, and it's something I've got in my notebook. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that I'm holding my notebook up with lots of little timestamps and stuff that I want to go back and explore later today or tomorrow. And one of the things that Scal said was, at the like at the time, he was like, the Grizzlies are only getting offense off turnovers and rebounds. They're not creating anything in the half court. And that was because Boston was swarming. Now, don't get me wrong. The Grizzlies done a fantastic job on Tatum for the most part of that game. You know, um, 21 points of Tatum's explosion came in the fourth. Mm-hmm. For the first and second quarter, they were doubling, tripling. They were really making it difficult for Tatum to um, to get his shots off to find any rhythm. And I feel like that was a big part of, like, both teams' defensive structure was, like, 
take away the half court offense and complete for the Celtics in talk, like against the Grizzlies because they didn't want to give Triple J an opportunity. Really, he had himself a good game. They wanted to make sure that any kickouts to Desmond Bain were picked up instantly because of how um, volatile he is as a shooter. Whereas the Grizzlies were very much just like, yo, get the ball out of Tatum's hands, we're going to be okay. Because these dudes can't shoot threes and they don't have Jalen Brown to worry about. And I feel like they overplayed their hand on Tatum because once he figured out how to manipulate those double teams, he was getting wherever he wanted. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think it took him, you know, really in the second half. I know that that he picked it up big. And what's up? We got a special guest appearance from from our teacher in arms. What up, Greg? What's good? I, I saw that the link was in the chat and I was like, you know what? I got a couple minutes. Let me hop on, see what they're talking about, see if I can give any insight. Yeah, man, we're talking about Tatum right now and uh, and kind of how the Grizzlies game planned against them and how he reacted. Let's, let's, let's get your take on it while you're here. Oh, man. Well, I don't know what you've already covered so far, but I just thought Tatum and, you know, you and I talked about this last night, Will, but his his ability to read defenses now and to manipulate defenses is just going to a whole nother level. And the physicality that he plays with, like, it took him a while, I think, to get used to it and to kind of figure out how he wanted to attack them. But once he was able to recognize, like, oh, they're guarding me this way. I have this much space when I come off a pick and roll. They're double teaming from this side. So when the double comes, I'm going to get rid of it, get it back and go. Um, I just thought everything that he was doing, he was very patient. It's like the classic superstar game, right, where you don't try to do too much at the beginning. You feel it out. You get everybody else involved the best you can. And when it's crunch time, that's when you take over. And that's what we saw in the fourth quarter. And I, I, I started to kind of get that feeling a little bit. You know, around the beginning of the fourth quarter, I think he had like 16 points. He ended up going for 21 in the fourth. And I was just like, you know what? If Tatum if, 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 if Tatum can get going here, if he get a couple buckets, then watch out. And that's what happened. You know, he hit a couple floaters and then he took off. I mean, for me, it was very much a, the reactionary thing, right? So if you look at the way they did him up in the first and second quarter, it felt like to me Tatum was just taking mental notes. He was like, right, you're 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 swarming me quick. You're blitzing very, uh, every time I get the ball. The Celtics at the beginning, one of my first notes in the first quarter was they ran a lot of wedge screens for him, which is literally just a back screen to get Tatum into the post. And the Celtics were just trying to get that post action going. Um, they called it, if you saw Grant Williams was kind of telling Tatum, like, you'll run punch more because it's open all the time. Punch is just a common way of saying post up. It's a high-low entry pass. But even Grant Williams was telling Tatum, get into the post or start feeding guys in the post and running punch. And I think that Tatum was getting really good looks there. It was just how quickly the Grizzlies were reacting. And then later in the game, the Celtics started adding more movement in. So guys were curling into that screen to drag defenders out of the way. And Tatum would then relocate to the weak side and get a, get the ball there instead. And it, it was very much like it was a an analysis of the first half it was like right this is how they're covering me if they cover me this way in the third and fourth then this is how we're going to counter and i feel like that's been a cerebral adjustment from the celtics especially the coaching staff uh from from january onwards they've seen far more cerebral in letting teams show their hand early and then kind of countering or snapping at that hand you know like that alligator or crocodile out of um peter pan where it snacks off hook's hand Hook's got no hand left. They're doing that sort of stuff. I'm going to call it the Peter Pan offense. That's what I'm going to call it. Are we about like to go it. into a tangent about Peter Pan? Because like <laughs> I, I could talk about Hook all day. My man Rufio, that's like my favorite character <laughs> when I was a little kid. You wanted to be Rufio as a kid. 
For real, that was like, like you should have had higher, higher aspirations than being one of Hook's boys. <laughs> well, Rufio, was, on, Rufio is the leader of the Lost Boys, right? He was the like Asian ah, okay. dude with the with the red feather in his hair. Yeah, that was my guy. I think I can picture that dude. But no, I'm just saying, like you know, like it was that very. They're they're getting the the information from a defense early, and that sometimes you know we've seen. Jalen Brown might be a guy that leads the way in the first quarter because he just mm-hmm. likes to start games hot. But overall, the Celtics are very much in inform- acquiring information mode. They're probing defenses, seeing where those reactions are, testing out different methods on how to try and get the defense to bite. And then they're flipping the script in the third and fourth. And I, that's why I'm calling it that Peter Pan offense because they're, and it's more hook offense than anything, right? Because they're getting <laughs> it, they're getting it, then bang, we're going to snap it off and then we're going to attack you like this and stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the other things that, that they do a lot, you know, that Tatum specifically did last night is just simple, make the simple pass to get out of those traps. You know, a lot of times there would be where they would trap the up around like mid court area and you just get robbed at the three point line. You hit him with that simple pass to get out of that trap. And now you have a great passer going four on three against the defense. Like it's little things like that. And Tatum himself just, I think last night, even though there's a couple sloppy turnovers mixed in there you know, throughout the game, like we saw the evolution of, of him becoming a playmaker. You know, I was watching t- uh, earlier today, I was watching a few highlights before we came on here uh, with my cup of coffee. And like that alley-oop that he has to Rob Williams when he's in the lane and like it's usually a, he's going to force up a floater or some type of fadeaway. And now he's dishing it off for an alley-oop to Rob Williams. Like it's little things like that, that Jason Tatum just just involving himself as a playmaker. And it's going to help big time when like, you know, when the Celtics shoot the ball, they're like the guys outside of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. When they shoot the ball well, it's been proven time and time again this year that this team is really, really hard to beat. So when you get four of eight from Al, you get four of nine from Marcus, two of four from Derek White, three of three from Grant Williams, one of three from Peyton Pritchard, like that's going to be, you know, it's going to be really hard for any team in the league to come and beat the Celtics. And on top of that, you add Jason Tatum goes for 21 in the fourth, 37 points overall. Like that's a recipe, even without Jalen Brown, that's a recipe that most teams are not going to be able to beat. So I think last night was a huge step in the process of, of this team asserting themselves into that true contender role. You know who else needs flowers? And I will say this first, one of Tatum's drives will forever live etched into my brain because it was so beautiful. Um, and beautiful is the right word. We could go gorgeous. We could go stunning, breathtaking, whatever you want, whatever word you want to use, choose, is it, choose your, um, I, I'm not going to make myself look silly here. Choose your word. Um, but there was one way he was driving. The defense collapsed on him. It was in the fourth quarter and he kind of like twitched right. So that he's driving right-handed. He's grabbed the ball in his gather and he's twitched like he's about to dump the ball off and the defense has kind of jumped to close the passing lane. Then he's just Euro stepped straight to the rim and it was just beautiful. It's still, if you remember it, it's the one where Scal said, oh my God, he just keeps getting better and better. I don't know if that triggers the memory of the play for you. But we spoke on Tatum. I think we spent quite a bit of time on Jar too, and that was for the Grizzlies to do more than us. But the dude's just so good. One guy we haven't touched on really, other than saying he guarded Morant for a few minutes, was uh, was Horford, who turned back that clock. He was not average Al. He was, oh my God, Al Horford is amazing Al. How do you guys feel about that performance? Because me personally, I'm like, dude, I don't care if he's going to get another 30 million next year. This guy can't go nowhere. I, I love what I saw from Al. Will and I are huge Al Horford fans. Even back when he in his first stint with the Celtics, we were the two guys that were like leading the Al Horford is not average train. Right? We were going at Lou Merloni every chance we got. And, um, you know, we didn't have a podcast at the time, but we were we were going at it. Still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we were trolling and, in the in the DM tweets. <laughs> yeah, we were definitely trolling. 
and Al, I mean, you know, he played 40 minutes last night, which is not sustainable. But when when you're able to dig into those reserves a little bit, when you have a couple days off, you know, we don't play again until Sunday and you know that you can still rely on him when necessary to go to those lengths. That's why it's important for some games for Al Horford to only play, you know, 22 minutes or 25 minutes so that when we need him to go the extra 10, we can't. And that three-point shot's really coming along. He talked about it after the Hawks game when he hit that big shot in the fourth quarter. And he said, you know, the guy that was that that was hyping me up all year has been Jason Tatum. He's been encouraging me to shoot through the slump. And that's exactly what we need because that two-big lineup with Horford and Rob Williams, that's been great defensively. It's worked well enough offensively. But what's really going to take that to the next level is if Al Horford becomes, you know, an average three-point shooter, shooting around 34, 35%. And that's kind of what we're seeing from Al of late. You know, he was 50%, I think, last night from three, which is probably not something you can expect every night. But if he's at 35 to 38% and he becomes a threat where people actually have to run at him when he's at the three-point line, that's big for the Celtics. Yeah, vintage, vintage Al last night, dust off the wine cellar. Like, that was the Al Horford from the first go-around with the Celtics. And, Greg, I think something you said really stuck out to me is, like, you know, when we need him to be able to go, maybe not 40, but go 35-plus or or whatever. And that makes me think of, you know, if we get into a playoff series with a team like the Cavs, that's going to be a team that we absolutely do need him to play 35-plus minutes or so, and he's going to have a huge role in some of those games. If the Bucks get all of their guys back and they decide to go big, that's going to be a series where we need Al to step up and be and be that guy. And, you know, like the shooting has, hasn't been consistent this year, but other than that, I think Al has brought a steadiness to this team throughout, especially on the defensive end. He's just been very reliable. He's not going to give you the ultra highs that you get from Rob Williams where he's going to have five, six, seven blocks in a game or whatever it might be. But Al is just reliably consistent. And last night, I was so happy, as Greg mentioned, you know, it, it was really funny. The first time, so Greg and I have lived in Austin, Texas for so long now. After Al Horford got signed, he and I would watch every game together. We were we were roommates at the time, so we'd watch every game. And we would like develop this really strong affinity for Al Horford. Like, yo, Al is our guy. And at one point, we were having like crazy conversations. Like, hey, is Al like one of our top five favorite Celtics of all time? Like in our lifetime, you know what I mean? Like excluding guys that that we weren't alive to actually watch in real time. And like we were having those type of discussions. And then we go back to Boston for it was that playoff series against the Bulls. When we ended up losing the first two games, Rondo goes down, we come back and win 4-2. And we were shocked when we got around, like, Boston, people that just live in Boston who were like, man, Al's been kind of disappointing this year. And Greg and I started losing our minds because Al has been a guy that throughout his tenure with the Celtics, and I think the first time around, people started to get the idea of what makes Al so special. And this time around, to your point, Adam, I'm, I'm like, honestly, like, yeah, is, is the 30 million or 26 million he gets too much? Of course. But I think what he brings to this team, you see why Brad made that move and gave up a first round pick. What he brings to this team is so valuable and gives this team that extra potential edge from what we could have had was what he's going to give us versus what Kemba or a first round pick would give us. Al's going to give us that 10 times over and be more and be very important to this team down the stretch run. Yeah. And that, so that was the Gerald Green series, right? Yeah. The Gerald Green, where Brad made the big switch, putting Gerald Green at the four, and then all of a sudden the Celtics come back and beat, and beat the Bulls. Yeah, but with Al, one more thing. In his first stretch, right, I, he was never KG. I'm not going to say he was KG, but he was offering 
I don't know, 85% of what KG offered after the injury, maybe maybe even before the injury, because KG was already like diminished a little bit athletically. He wasn't quite the culture changer that KG was, right, to where he, he was just tenacious. But the skills that he actually has on the court, they have very similar games. Um, you know, KG was obviously on steroids f- compared to what Al is. But even now, like at Al, 35, 36 years old, the productivity that we're getting out of him is more than we ever got out of KG, like 2010, 2011, 2012, right? Like he, he's so good for this team. Um, I, I can't even imagine what this season would look like if Al Horford was not on the team. Imagine if we hadn't moved Kemba, if we still tried to make something work out of Kemba, that wasn't going to work. So the fact that we have Al and he's been so productive and he set the tone defensively, I mean, the, the guy deserves his flowers for sure, as Adam started this conversation with. But Adam, we haven't got your perspective on it. Just trying to find where Al sits in blocks per game. To be I would, I'm gonna guess top 25. Okay, we've just, I've got it up now. So Al, <laughs> so we've got Robert Williams is second only to Rudy Gobert for blocks, 2.2 a game. Al Horford is 12th. So you've got two your two big lineup, your starting two big lineup of Rob and Al are two of the best 15 shot blockers in the league. Like that tells you a lot about why the Celtics have been so good defending around the room. And for Al at age 35 to be hovering around that top 10 in shot block, I mean, Joel Embiid is 10th. Do you know what I mean? Like th- these guys are Jaron Jackson Jr.'s third, uh, Whiteside's nine, Robinson seven, Mobley six. Like these guys are all legitimate, like defensive pieces. Maybe not Whiteside, but you know, <laughs> um, he's, really tall, he's really tall. To, to his yeah, credit, he's massively tall. He has to, by yeah. accident, get a couple blocks a game. But like, my point being is, this is a thirty-five-year-old man that is hanging around some of the most elite rim protectors in the league, and he's doing so in a really understated way. I'm a big fan of this. Like you said earlier, like Al's not the culture-setting guy that KG was, but Al Horford is most definitely part of the culture reset that's happened this season. You know, if everyone's listening, go and read Keith Smith's piece because Keith Smith's piece is what's made me think of this. So um, good. So I'm basically just paraphrasing what Keith wrote. So obviously I need to credit that. But as Keith said, Horford coming back has helped bring some of that grit and grind back to Boston. It's helped kind of rebuild a, a sense of, a sense of self-worth in terms of like we're we're the Celtics, we represent Boston. This is who we are and what the what the fans want to see. And obviously, I'm not from Boston, so I can't speak on what the fans there want to see. But I know what I want to see. Um, and then Horford's a big part of that. He never gets too high. He never gets too low. He's one of the leading voices in that locker room. Uh, and this game specifically, I thought his work on the re- on the boards was fantastic. I thought the way he mixed his game up. You know, there were moments where he went into the post and just went old man style with a little drop step or a spin move and oh, got that one on Steven years. Adams was beautiful. That was that was like a time machine throwback. And I'm working on <laughs> I'm working on a piece about that game now for, for like with the sole basis of it being about Horford's game. And one of the things that I've kind of noted is 
we're in an era where big men, like old school big men, are completely and utterly on the scrap heap. If you can't evolve to be at least 65% of a modern day big man, then realistically, you're not going to see much time in the league unless you're playing for a team that hasn't moved with the times and then you get Hassan Whiteside ninth in blocks. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like Horford has kind of found this perfect like synergy. He hasn't gone to Brook Lopez and um, Blake Griffin route and just become a sharp shooting f- from free or, you know, air quote sharp shoot. That's, that's a generous uh, assertion to, to Blake Griffin's capabilities. Yeah, from air quotes. But like what he's done is he's like, yo, I'm going to mix in my post moves, but I'm also going to mix in some some pick and pop freeze, some pick and pop mid range. And I think Al Horford's done like he's molded the old and the new style of big man to, and he's like the guiding light. Cause if you want to know how you can be a, an effective big man in every different scenario, then Al Horford should be the guy that you try and model your game after rather than being very situational. Hey, Will, have you dropped your bar from last night? I have not. I forgot. Uh, about this that. is the time you gotta, you gotta drop it. Let, let's see what Adam thinks about it. So last night, Greg and I were talking about this and just talking about kind of the the Celtics front line in general, where you have, you know, to your point, we're talking about Al Horford and Rob Williams right now being top of the lead in blocks. And, you know, Daniel Tice gets in the mix last night for 13 minutes and he's stable. You know, this this is kind of the role that Daniel Tice was was meant to be. And like it was great when he was, you know, starting for us and he was he was overperforming probably and got himself a nice little contract that's going to carry with him, you know, back to the team now. But really kind of that third role is is what you needed. And so what I was talking about is, you know, and I think we've talked about it on this program before too, is that if you have a unicorn, that's great. What you don't want to end up doing is overpaying for those guys in the middle that can't hang with the unicorns, but they're really not good enough on their own just to be your your main center, but you're paying them that way, and that's kind of what you have to roll with. So what the Celtics have is that they've got a stable of horses that can go up against those unicorns in any form or fashion, and to your point, you know they're all malleable. They're a different look, a different flavor that you can throw out there between Al, Rob, and then Tice, and it gives you a little bit of security that if one of those horses isn't able to go – you can still feel pretty confident going into whether it's a game if someone's out or even a couple games. If you're rolling with just Rob and Al, obviously, or if you got to roll with Rob and Tice or Al and Tice, like you feel really confident that no matter who you're going up against, you know, even if it's one of those unicorns, you got somebody for 48 straight minutes that you're going to be able to rumble with them. So that's something that I think is really underrated and it's super important about the Celtics team and where that front court is going to play a huge role when we start to see those some of those unicorns down the line. Yeah, I gotta, I, I gotta, I gotta get out of here in a second. But I just want to let everybody know. Think about this bar that my man Will just dropped. If you don't got a unicorn, you better have a stable full of horses. Let's go. That is an absolute <laughs> bar. I'm I love go the energy, man. <laughs> Bringing the energy first thing, and I thought this is gonna be on the next Black Sheep Optimist slide. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I better, I better get a, a citation on that. <laughs> yeah, that's copyrighted, Mr. Will. Yeah. We're circa 2022. We'll be seeing that on a the baby thing soon, and we'll be like. Yo, the baby listen to the podcast. Yo, I got the receipts. I'm coming for him. <laughs> All right, Talk guys. About receipts. Gonna, I got to get out of here. All right, All right, thank you for joining, man. Yeah, Have a good absolutely. day at work. Have a yeah. fabulous Friday. That's what I you will, need baby. To do. I will. Have fun, guys. Yeah, dude. All right, later, dude. We're talking about receipts. One of the things that I kind of uh, had a bit of a whinge about yesterday on a, on a vitamin C's on YouTube, and we'll go back to the basketball thing in a moment, was – about a week ago or five days ago, I put out a tweet and I've moaned about this a few times at this point saying we all owe him a Doka an apology. The tweet did well, you know, mm-hmm. lots of people saw it ahead of a lot of impressions. Multiple podcasts spawned within a day saying, do we owe him a Doka an apology? 
Not one of them mentioned that tweet. I want to know, did you all have the same thought as me? Or did my tweet be the thing that kind of gave you the inspiration to record that <laughs> podcast? And if my tweet gave you the inspiration, where was the love to name drop me? I'm insulted. Anyway, <laughs> we can move on. I'm not really that insulted. It's it's not that serious, but I just want well, to let's talk about this for, for a second, because we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Right. And and I saw and I had I had I saw your tweet and it's something I had been thinking about previously to that. Then I saw it. I was like, OK, I'm not the only one thinking about this. Like and so, you know, apology. I actually do feel like apology is a little strong. And here's why. I think he deserves a ton of flowers, as we talked about at the beginning of this. He deserves a ton of credit. Like, like that I can't overstate enough that he deserves a ton of credit. Like, this turnaround does not happen without Ime Odoka. He's He's been really gutsy. He's evolved. He's done a lot of things that, that have shown progression, just like we look for in a player. Like, how are they different throughout the year? What changes year one to year two? We're talking about Tatum's passing and playmaking earlier. Coaching's kind of the same thing. Like, like where is he starting to get his feel and starting to grow? So where I struggle with apology is like, I don't necessarily think our criticisms were wrong. As long as you weren't part of like the fire email, it's like, all right, let's calm down. It's a, it's a rookie head coach. Like that was a bridge too far. If you're in that camp, yeah, you owe email an apology. Like dead serious, you owe him an apology. But if you didn't go that far, like, and I don't think we ever took it that far. We were certainly frustrated and we had our criticisms. I mean, honestly, I think he's addressed them. Like that that's the thing is like, I don't think the criticisms were necessarily wrong, but we were frustrated that it felt, you know, robotic with some of his substitution patterns. That's not the case anymore. You know, like I said, we're getting Peyton Pritchard in the in the closing five, and then he's swapping Derek White in for defense. Like he's making, you know, he's making changes on the fly. He went to the Rob Williams, you know, free safety concept. Like that wasn't something that that was available. Like he continuously was playing Marcus Smart and Dennis Schroeder together after we knew that wouldn't work. He went away from that after that Knicks game, after that debacle against the Knicks. In the season, I'm telling you, right now, the way I feel about this season, that's the line in the sand for me. That game right there. I think a lot of things changed after that debacle, after we fell apart. R.J. Barrett hits the crazy shot. I think that's the line in the sand moment for this season so far. And a lot of that started with, hey, right after that game, it was, you know, when EMA does something just like with the switching where he, like, did it purposely, like, so much that it was like, we're going to learn this by over-switching almost just to make sure that we get that habit. He went so hard in on the never playing Marcus and Dennis together again that I don't think until Dennis was traded, they ever like shared the court unless there was injuries together again. And so I think that's an area that you can look to. So when we think about apologizing, I actually don't necessarily think it's an apology. Like, I just think it's an acknowledgement that he's made changes and he's gone above and beyond. And he's really hammered, hammered in to the defense is our identity. That's how we're going to win. He simplified it, gone with a smaller lineup of the guys he trusts. And we're, you know, we're seeing the results right now. So I think he deserves all the credit in the world. I'm not 100% sure we does, he, that we have to apologize, but I just think we need to make sure we give him his due, and we're certainly doing that. Yeah, when I say apologize, like, maybe I chose the wrong word when I put that tweet out. Like, it was just a passing thought, and that's kind of what yeah, for sure. is just, you know? But, like, for me... That's I what Twitter people... is. It's, it's a bunch of passing thoughts that we all put together into the world, and then people crucify us for it. That's how it goes. Yeah, exactly, and I get crucified my fair share. Um, I think, for me, it was very much along the lines of, like, hey, some of these criticisms we gave you were super early in the season, and maybe we should have waited. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, you know, I, if you start building something... You might not do it the same way as somebody else, but the end result will still get there. You know what I mean? You're just doing it in, you're going a roundabout way. And we remember, if we, I remember speaking about the over exaggerations 
Like you get people to do things very exaggerated and then you start peeling away the levers until you get to a refined product. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear now. That's what Udoka was doing. Yeah. And I kind of saw that in a way because I remember specifically going on a tangent about it. But at the same time, it was still frustrating to witness because you could see other teams figuring stuff out faster. Do you know what I mean? But looking back, it was like, well, he had to unwire bad habits to start putting new wiring in. So maybe we did owe him an apology. So more, not for what people said, obviously, apart from the fiery May crowd, yeah. but more for how quickly everyone got on his back, how how unapologetically insistent we were on success instantly. Yeah. Do you I know mean, what I think- mean? Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I think that's the one I kept trying to tell myself patience. But when you have three to four podcasts a week that you're on, that patience, it, it doesn't it doesn't always last as long as you want it to because you feel like you have to say something. And there were certain times where, you know, we talked about it. It felt like, hey, can we copy and paste our episode from last week and then just like insert the new team name that we're talking that we played? Because yeah. it felt like the same podcast. But it was so it was trying to understand patience, but while also trying to find something new to talk about, it was really difficult at certain points, you know, earlier in the year. But I do think that's a huge, huge part of it is that, you know, we probably didn't have enough patience. That part, I think I can totally, totally agree on. And this is something that, and also something that I think is, uh, you know, different with Ime than with sometimes other new head coaches is typically when head coaches, when you're a new head coach, especially a rookie head coach too, and you come into a situation, generally you don't have a ton of expectations. This team was expected to compete. That's a different level. That's that's a lot harder for a rookie coach to have to deal with. Like you think about back to, you know, Brad Stevens when he became the head coach of the Celtics, we had just torn down everything. We weren't expecting to be good. You know, we just traded KG, Pierce, Jason Terry. We got a bunch of draft picks back. You know, we we were expecting to rebuild. And Brad Stevens exceeded those expectations, but he was able to do so under the veil of, hey, we're just kind of sitting back and seeing what happens. Like, whatever. If we end up winning 20 games, that's fine. If we end 30 games, that's fine. Like, there's there's not really where with Ime, it was like, bro, you have two all-stars. What are you doing? Why aren't you better? Why, why aren't we better as a yeah. team? You know, sure. and, and that's just a whole other level of complicated expectations that probably was not factored into, you know, his evolution, him trying to grow as a coach, is that he's doing so in, you know, in this bubble of expectations that makes it, you know, that much more critical or like there's so, so much more eyes on it that it was really difficult. And now that we're getting a little bit of space as we're getting, you know, 65 plus games and whatever, whatever we are at this point, you're seeing that evolution. You're seeing, ah, that's what it was at the beginning of the season that we're now seeing the benefits of down the stretch. So what would, what, what I'm hearing here is if Udoka had a theme song for his first four months in charge of the Celtics, it would be Avril Lavigne complicated. <laughs> Man, that's a throwback. I was wondering where you were going to go with this. Anyway, um, yeah, no, I completely agree. I do think that the expectations placed on his shoulders from the get-go were tough. The one, I've got one more topic, and I think like, you articulated it perfectly. So I don't like me t- me saying anything else now is just reinforcing your point and boring everybody that's listening. And I have one more point I want to hit before we go, and that's the acquisition of a Mister Nick Stauskas on a two-year contract, former top 10 pick, 2008. No, it can't be 2008. Can no, it? no, it was 2014. There we go. I don't know where I had a late in my head from. We were talking, you mentioned KG. It's probably from about to 2008. Um, 2014, former top 10 pick, coming off two games in which he'd accumulated a total of 100 points. He's been shooting 46 point something percent. Let me, I did have the number in front of me, but I've moved away from it. 
46.6% in the G League this season, a career 35% shooter in the NBA from deep, uh, 35.4 if we want to be precise. He's coming in. I'm not sure we're going to see him get many minutes, but at least it's a shooter that A, isn't a complete project. You, you know, this guy's got NBA experience on multiple teams. And B, you can just plug and play for four, five, ten minutes a game and just use him as a single skill specialist. And I think the biggest point there is he's not a project. He's not a Sam Hauser that has never really got any NBA experience. He he doesn't play center like Luke Cornett. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's not Aaron Neesmith that's still learning. This is just a guy that's a single skill specialist with NBA experience on a cheap deal that's coming off the back of one of the most productive weeks of his career. I feel confident in that. If you need scoring, I feel confident in putting him out there. Yeah, I like this move because I think this is this is one of the moves that I've actually paid a little bit more uh, attention to, like then the signing of Matt Ryan or Malik Fitz, and I'm missing a few other guys that honestly, I, I'll, I'll be real, I have not paid a ton of attention to because I don't think they're going to see the floor. And if they do, it's only because something has gone horribly, horribly wrong or something has gone exceedingly well and we're up by 50 points late, late in the fourth. So other than that, those guys don't expect, and, I, and even with Nick Stauskas, to your point, I think it's more like the five to 10 minute range, but you know, this is kind of some of the conversations that we had had, like who does Eme like to play? And for the most part, he does like to lean on veterans a little bit more. And so I think where Nick Stauskas has a little bit of a resume, there is a chance that he gets those opportunities because that's something that I think was, was evident last night, obviously after you know Jalen not playing last night, resting that ankle, Neesmith goes down early. Man, just a just an ankle graveyard, the TD guard in the last couple games. Just ankles going down left and right. But, you know, uh, Aaron Neesmith goes down, and then you're left with, like, all right, so w- what do we do? And, and you could tell, he, I mean, Neesmith went down five minutes in. So we didn't see, you know, he didn't feel comfortable going to Hauser. And I don't think, you know, that, that grouping beyond about the nine, ten guys that we really talk about on this program are really guys that that Ime wants to run out there unless we hit those scenarios that I mentioned before. And so what we ended up with was a lot of three big lineups with Grant Williams, Daniel Tice, Horford, Rob Williams, whatever it was. And, you know, I, I think you can get away with that for, for, for moments. That's not necessarily sustainable. So I think you need to have a little bit more security in the back pocket and that's what I think Nick Stauskas will be and so to your point I don't know how much run he's going to get but I do hope that he gets the the minutes that Sam Hauser wasn't able to get last night when Neesmith goes down I hope that Stauskas can come in and give you those five to ten minutes and ideally you just want him to be able to not get killed on the defensive end but be able to then you know prop up your offense and knock down a couple of those open shots in those five to 10 minutes. And that's really all you're looking for. And that's what he is, you know, at least based off the G league and what he came in to the league as that's what he's supposed to be. So I'm interested to see if he gives him those small sample size chances and see if he can kind of, uh, you know, capitalize on them. Yeah. So to go back to our hashtag nerd squad, I just want to throw this out there. Cause you, as you just said, you want that offense to be propped up. You want that defense to be hidden where you can be hidden. And because of Stauskas' NBA resume, we should see some of that. One of the main plays that the Celtics run are hammer screens. They run a bunch of hammer sets, and that's literally just a um, a screen where you set facing away from the baseline and you set it towards the, the corner so that your corner free guy who was on the wing can sink, get the ball and hit or raise out the corner onto the wing and hit. I'll put up, if somebody wants to know, just tweet at me and I'll put you a video up of a hammer screen. But one of the things that that is really good for is catch and shoot free guys, guys that are just literally 
We don't want you to put the ball on the floor. We don't want you to do anything other than catch the ball in space and fire freeze. Running Stauskas in hammer sets is going to be fantastic. Running him off pin downs where you just set a wide pin. He curls over the pin down, gets the ball and shoots. Great. If he has to put the ball on the floor, I'm not going to feel so confident. I just want you putting him in positions where it's, hey, come off this pin down, catch and shoot. Come off this, like sink into the corner or lift out of the corner off a hammer screen, catch and shoot. Guess what? If you can hit 37% of your threes doing that, your career is going to start going on an upward trajectory. Yeah. And you've been struggling to make that happen for now. Boston are one of the better ball movement teams at the moment. They're very intricate in the way they run their screening systems anyway. I feel like, I feel like there's going to be a bunch of opportunity for Stauskas to, if you can hit your threes, you're going to get minutes because at the moment, the other guys that are meant to be hitting their threes aren't hitting their threes. I mean, before Neesmith went down, he, he airballed a, a three. Man, our guy, Aaron Neesmith. I, it's, and the thing was, like, to your point, the offense flowed so beautifully, and he got such a beautiful open look and couldn't have missed it by more than what felt like 30 feet. Like, it was that it was that far off. I, I feel really bad for Aaron Neesmith. I hope that he's fine with this ankle injury, but I got to be honest, Adam, I'm kind of out on Aaron Neesmith for this season. Not long-term yeah. yet, but I think this season, I just, I, I just can't see a world in where all of a sudden it's going to click. I think last night was kind of the last opportunity for that to happen where he gets start, maybe boost the confidence a little bit. And then, you know, he horribly airballs that three in that wide open three off great ball movement. And that's the, and it's the thing that that's the ideal shot and roll that we needed was that, that, that play right there, you know, ball movement. He did a great job relocating to the corner. You know, I think it was Marcus smart found him. It was everything you could have wanted in the end. It, the shot just wasn't even close. And then he, you know, and then he ends up hurting himself. And I, I think I don't want to say that's the last we're going to see of Aaron Neesmith this year, but I don't think we're going to see a ton more of Aaron Neesmith. I think Stauskas pushes Neesmith back in that rotation. I genuinely do, and I think that might be the best thing for him. Uh, as I said on the podcast earlier in the week, for me, I'm very much in the mindset of Neesmith is going through what Grant Williams went through, and he just needs to spend this summer watching film and adjusting his game. Whether that means he needs to bulk up whether that means he needs to really double down on choosing one or two specific skills to specialize in coming yeah. into next year, just to be like, right, I'm a specialized role player and I'm going to expand on that once I'm cemented in the rotation. Whatever he needs to do, it's going to happen in the off season. There's not enough time left this year for any, yeah. any growth. Uh, I'd much rather him kind of, part of me just wants him pulled from the rotation and given developmental time. And that's what I'm kind of reading into the Stauskas side yeah. a little bit. To your point is that I think like moving forward, like, you know, Peyton Pritchett has solidified himself. We talked about he's even getting some closing minutes. Daniel Tice is going to be that, you know, third big, or if we need to go extra big and move Grant down to the three, Tice is going to get some, some minutes. And then after that, I don't think there's many other guys that are yeah. that are not who are not solidly in the rotation that are getting minutes. And so I think if there is an op, it's probably going to go to Stauskas at this point. Doesn't seem like they want to go to Hauser yet. So I think Stauskas is potentially the guy that slides in there. And, and Neesmith, it's you know, like you said, we'll, we'll see next year. But I'm I'm not I'm not planning on on anything popping at this point. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not. I'm at the point now where I'm just like, yo, let the guy develop away from the limelight. Yeah. And you've bought a guy in that's been fighting to get back into the league, has something to prove right now with the experience necessary. Let's give him a go and let's see what happens. And if it doesn't work, you know, if Neesmith's had four or five weeks extra development away to rebuild that confidence, maybe some time down in Maine to get that rhythm and that run back. 
swap them in and out, do what you need to do. But let's see what we've got under the hood in Stauskas, as in fitting him. We know what Stauskas is as a player. We've seen it before around the league, but let's see how he fits with this team because fit and situation play an enormous part in a player's ability to succeed or fail in the league. And I think that, you know, whenever you get a new guy, you kind of need to keep that in mind. Does this fit and this situation enhance what they're capable of doing? And you've seen it with, like, Josh Richardson. Mm -hmm. The fit and situation was exceptional for him in Boston under Rodoka. I'm assuming it would be the same in San Antonio. Now, we have ran on a little while. I know uh, you need to start work soon. I know that I need to go and collect the child from school. So we're going to, and then I've got to edit this and get it up. So we're going to end it here. Now, before we go, make sure that you scroll down, you find them five stars. They're not going to be a color at the moment. They're going to be opaque. Hit the fifth one, not the first, the fifth. Hit it once. It's going to say you have left a five star review. We're going to be super grateful. Then scroll a little bit further down. It's going to have a little comment box. Write something nice. Adam's awesome. Will's awesome. Greg's awesome. If you ain't going to write nothing nice, that's fine. I understand some people only want to leave a bad review like not with us but you know i only leave reviews when i'm not impressed with something if i'm impressed i don't say anything that's just the way society usually works and now if you've already left a review or you're on a, a podcasting app that doesn't allow you to leave a review that's cool too there's other ways you can support us first of all by responding to this tweet when i put this show out with hashtag nerd squad or hashtag nerd confidence or whatever you want it to be and secondly my boy will is a marketing genius came up with this whole script for you was coming right off the dome right now well what else can they do for us homebrew yes if you want to spread the good word of the celtics pod celtics blog podcast here and you don't have technology you don't like going on technology word of mouth is a great way to do it so if you're like adam and you got a kid or you're like greg and maybe you're a teacher talk to your fellow teachers talk to your talk to your kids teachers talk to talk to your babysitters let them know if they're trying to follow the celtics the only way to do it the best way to do it is by joining the three-man weave spontaneous three-man weave today by the way you're welcome the Celtics blog, Celtics pod podcast, come follow it. Adam Taylor, Will Weir, Greg Menegas, hit us up. We'll be here Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tune in. Have a fabulous Friday. Fantastic, awesome, amazing, splendid, stupendous. Whatever word you want to use, make sure your Friday and weekend have that same energy. We'll catch you again on Monday. Namaste. Ain't disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative Than stressing my wages, ageless, every time I lay a verse down One play at a time, keep it moving like a first down And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this MJ never made it to the majors, still he chased greatness Expected that he might fail, and I might too I might never get to pop champagne, celebrating with the crew This ain't everything I am, it's something that I do